There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Legendary classic rock band Jethro Tull plays Wolf Trap in Vienna, Virginia in a few weeks on August 24th. I spoke to frontman Ian Anderson about bringing the flute into rock music for a career of hits, from Aqualung to Locomotive Breath to Bungle in the Jungle, and even got his thoughts on that Aqualung spoof by Will Ferrell in Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. Hey, Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. Hey, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP. Well, Jason, you're using your radio voice, and it's nice to be with you, and I'm using my um, my slightly tired end-of-day interview voice, so forgive me if I sound a bit surly and uncommunicative, but it's been a long day of marketing and promo, which is the ugly side of the business that I'm in, because I think of myself as a a creative person, but I have to help folks sell records. So um, um, that's why I'm doing all of this. Now, how can I help you? What seems yeah. to be the problem? <laughs> Hopefully we'll make this, uh, your marketing blitz, a little less painful. Uh, well, that, that, that's all right. I'm a doctor. You can you can confide in me. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, we're here talking be- a couple things. You got a new album. We'll get to that in a second. But uh, I want to tell everybody um, that, you know, you have a seven. De- it's called the Seven Decades Tour coming to Wolf Trap in Virginia on, on August 24th. That'll be the closest uh, to us here here in D.C. Can you believe it's been seven decades? <laughs> Well, it's it's um, we have released um, an album or some music in each of those seven decades, but that's not to suggest that it is a full seventy years that Jethro Tull has been active in in the uh, in the sphere, because in fact it's only a mere fifty five years since we started. But it spans um, it spans the the end of and uh, and now in the 2020s, the relative beginning of another decade. So seven decades is technically correct, but it's not 70 years. Exactly. It, it, it crosses over into little bits of those uh, decade periods. So it counts. <laughs> it, it's a catchier title for the tour, for sure. Uh, and and tell us about, um, you know, the the new album. How do you pronounce it? Is it is it Rock Float, your 23rd album? Well, the, the, it began when I started work on the album in... Uh, in on the first of January in two thousand and twenty-two, I just had a working title of Rock Flute because I had told the record company it would be a rock album featuring all the band members and it would prominently feature the flute as a rock instrument. So that's all I had to work with. But by the end of the day, I decided on the general theme of the album, and it became Rock, being the the old Icelandic word for destiny and flöte, which is the German word for the instrument I play, both of them intriguingly sporting um, a not merely decorative umlaut, as employed by the likes of Motorhead or Motley Crue, 
but but the real correct uh, grammatical spelling and so um i'm a i'm a double umlaut person at the moment <laughs> the rook flute i guess i gotta say well it's the destiny your destiny was the flute i guess is what it kind of means so let's let's go into how that destiny began i know you're born in scotland what sort of stuff did you grow up listening to how did you begin to pick up that flute in the first place i mean there's not a lot of rockers that that can play the flute so i'm always interested in how you picked it up to begin with well i was born in dunfermline in 1947 and uh, the band began in uh, January of 1968. We, we, uh, we began sporting the name Jethro Tull. Um, the flute I had picked up and played for the first time only in December, just before Christmas of 1967. So I did my learning on stage, playing the clubs and pubs, including the famous Marquee Club in London. And uh, at that point, there weren't too many people playing the flutes, as you can imagine. So it was something of a novelty, and it probably became a um, uh, the reason we got noticed by the, the the music press to begin with. So it didn't do any harm to be playing an unusual instrument, but there were others like Ray Thomas of the Moody Blues played the flute and the tambourine, and Chris Wood of Traffic played saxophone and and the flute. And um, a few people have, have tried to bring the flute into the world of progressive rock since then, but I suppose the um, the, the, the prominent nature of the flute in Jethro Tull music, or much of it, is is more akin to the role of the electric guitar. It's the the lead instrument playing riffs and solos, and and uh, unfortunately, it's really in your face. You can't escape it. Yeah, thanks for mentioning a couple of those other examples and differentiating too, because I know, yeah, the ones you mentioned, and then well, I guess Marshall Tucker Band has a little flute in there, I think, on like, can't you can't you see? But but your point is correct, that Jethro Tull is the one that it's the driving force. It is the main instrument, and I think that's why we most associate it with, with Jethro Tull of, of, among all the other bands. Um, how did the formation actually come about? How did you meet that original lineup? Because I know it's not the same guys touring with you today, but, you know, dote on, uh, you know, praise the, the original guys there for a minute. Well, some of us moved from uh, Blackpool in the north of England down to Luton, a, a town near London. And um, we hooked up with a guitar player and a drummer who lived in the Luton Dunstable area, Mick Abrahams, the guitar player, and Clive Bunker, the drummer, and Glenn Cornick, who was from Blackpool, and myself. We stayed down there and got together in a four-piece band that basically played um, respectable middle-class white man blues and and some of Mick Abraham's material that he played in other bands at that time so we we were we would we were plagiarizing really black american folk music and i wasn't really very comfortable with that approach i'm you know a huge fan then as i i am still today of black american music but well black american blues and jazz um, I think we have to we have to sidestep hip hop and a few other genres, but uh, certainly the music I grew up with it was you know ninety percent of the people I listened to were were black American and they played the blues, so I realised that I was uh, none of those things and either black American or or really authentic in terms of playing a, a music form that was something really some. 5,000 miles away from where I was. And in the second album in 1969, that's when I really began to 
use other influences that were closer to home, were more European. And I felt more at home with the second album, Stand Up, uh, than I had with the first album. So uh, we became, after a mere uh, six, seven months, we we, we became, um, well, what today is called progressive rock, I suppose. Yeah, thanks for pioneering that, that whole genre for us. Uh, it, we're we're forever in your in your debt and gratitude. Um, you mentioned you know stand up and some of the early albums. Um, in a, in a second we can get to some of you know the the ones that crossed over the pond here and became hits with America, Doc Walling, and everything like that. But before that, like those early British hits, you had you know Love Story, Sweet Dream, Living in the Past, Witches Promise, that kind of stuff. Like, do you have some a song from that early British period before you crossed over that you think that you want American listeners to go back if they only know your American stuff? Which ones would that you want them to go back that you're most proud of? I think a departure point actually was a song called Love Story, which was recorded in um, late October of 1968. And it was the last song that Mick Abrahams played on. And he wasn't very keen uh, on the direction that I was taking in terms of writing new music. Um, but that that's the last his last uh, appearance in the recording studio and the beginning of Jethro Tull doing something that wasn't really just the blues. It was something a little bit more of a hybrid, a little bit more of a um, embracing influences from other kinds of music. So that was the starting point. And I think from from there on in the early part of 1968 with Martin Barr joining the band, then we took on, I think, a more interesting set of musical uh, influences and, and a, a musical style that cemented our position in the early days, at least to begin with in the UK. But we did tour. We toured in the USA in 1969. We did three tours, in fact, and uh, it was slow, but we began to make a bit of an impact. You know, we were fortunate to play on some shows supporting Led Zeppelin, who were already quite established as a, a major new act. So that got us a, a bit of an audience. Imagine, imagine getting a ticket to see Led Zeppelin and suddenly this up and coming quote unquote band Jethro Tull is uh, opening on the bill. Like that's a that's a, a poster you'll want to frame one day, baby. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, as we mentioned, you know, the, the fourth album, Aqualung, is the one that really blew up, you know, worldwide and became huge in the States. And I know you've probably told the story a million times, but maybe for maybe our younger listeners, maybe just discovering, you know, what, what was it? Wasn't it like a photo that you or your wife took of a, a homeless? man sitting on a park bench in, in london it was like based on something you really saw right uh well i i didn't see it it was uh, merely uh, i suppose trying to find uh, a point of of uh cooperative creativity that i looked at some photographs my first wife had taken and said let's use this as a basis for a song and um i came up with a title and and um and she wrote some of the the lyrics and the um and we fleshed out the the character really talking about who this person might have been what his life might have been like and and that became the basis for the lyrics of the song but the the riff was something that i i think i quite possibly already had at that point i know i was on tour in the usa when i came up with the Da 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 dum line, and uh, I called Martin Barr in his hotel room and said, "Come up here, just bring your guitar. I want you to 
just pick up on a couple of things and we can try them at sound check. And so I played it to him on my little Martin acoustic guitar and he didn't seem very impressed. But I said, when we get to sound check, play these notes, turn it up to number 11 on your Marshall and uh, give it uh, <laughs> the full blast. And, and I think everybody then immediately thought, ah, oh, okay, now we understand what um, what this is about. But in a way, it's rather reminiscent. Those notes could have been the clarion call of the opening of a, a Beethovenian symphony. So uh, it would have worked, um, you know, in the classical genre with a full-on symphony orchestra or uh, um, uh, uh, a Gibson Les Paul with a Marshall amp. Thanks for only you could work a, a Beethoven reference and a Spinal Tap reference into <laughs> into uh, uh, describing Aqualung. I freaking I freaking love it. But you're right that that da, 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 it like grabs us, hits us right in the face, and doesn't let go right from the beginning of the song. Um, well, I'm sure a lot of people picked up that album to hear Aqualung, this huge hit that they'd heard. But in the process, they they got a little you know uh, religious commentary on Jesus maybe being misused uh, in his name thing, violence is that in him forty three or or overpopulation in locomotive breath. My wife's favorite song of yours, by the way, locomotive breath. She said I had to ask you about that, but uh, that one's about overpopulation. Um, to, uh, why is it important that your songs like in those particular you know they, they seem to be, they're always about something they're not just some catchy thing that we dance along to or something like they're if you dive into the lyrics of like a locomotive breath it's always about something uh, why is that important to you well I, the, the world is full of songs that are expressing personal feelings and m most typical typically you know that they're songs about being in love or being out of love that they're 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 me, my, how I feel today kind of songs, and that's everybody seems to do that. So I I am more of an objective songwriter. I like to write about things, observe things, and then perhaps try and present them in a way that is interesting to me and the band and ultimately an audience. So I'm I'm more of an objective songwriter. I think there are others that I would. Well, uh, Bruce Springsteen, for example, you know, he is yeah. in some ways, he's a, what he writes musically is quite often a social documentary on places that he knows, people he grew up with. And I, I find that much more interesting than, you know, the endless um, talking about myself, which is, um, you know, I get that out of my system doing all these interviews. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> when well, I, yeah, when I, I come to play music, I don't want to talk about me. Done done too much of it already. Talk about the world. I love it. You're a social commentator. And that, I, with, you're right. You're so right about about Bruce. Uh, I, one of his most underrated, I, the ghost of Tom Joe with, you know, the, the hot soup on a campfire under the bridge. And I, I you know, I, that's a social commentary, baby. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Um. Well, cool. And then so obviously at this point in this chronological journey we're going, I'll try to speed up here. But at this point, you know, things are... 
everybody knows your stuff now and they're kind of doubling back to discover your other stuff and you're re-releasing songs like living in the past you re-released that in 72 and becomes a hit here in the states um is it true you wrote that in an hour in a hotel room what in, in boston i think yes it was actually it was uh it was uh written to order uh manager wanted a uh, a song that we could record and send back to the UK to be released because we were in the USA for 13 weeks on that first tour. And in order not to lose the interest and affiliation of the um, the British audience, he wanted us to put something out in the UK. And so I, to humour him, I went upstairs to my room and said, you know, I'll be back in an hour with a song. <laughs> <laughs> and um and I was and it was you know it was a fun thing to record we recorded it actually a couple of days later in New York in a studio there with a small orchestra and, uh, and then I did the vocals and the flute I think when we got to San Francisco then we mixed it there and sent it back to the UK to uh, to be released as a single which uh, strangely it um, it did pretty well Wow. I, I, I don't know. How the heck do you have the talent and skill to just <laughs> impromptu go up? I'll be back in an hour with a song. That's incredible to me. Uh, bravo to you for that. All right. Well, well, maybe the, I, go, no, go I, th I think in many ways that things don't change. It's about having, you know, Frank Zappa had a band called the Mothers of Invention. And that really is the is the essentially the nature of my songwriting. I mean, I, I tend when I don't need to write anything, I probably don't. It's it's when I know that I, I actually have to wake up in the morning and get on with it because today I have to write a song or in the next two weeks I have to write an entire album. Then then that's the way I work. I, I like to have a bit of pressure, a little bit of um, a little bit of need to to uh, to engage with the creative process and, and really try and achieve something. And I, I've always felt that you know, it's not really very difficult to write a song. It's quite difficult to write a, a great song, but writing an okay song is a start. And then you have the opportunity to turn that okay song into a great song if you apply yourself and use your skills as a as a as a as a, a, a producer, as an arranger. You can you can build upon an idea that perhaps in in its first um edition is maybe not such a great song but you know keep working on it and that, that maybe that maybe takes hours it might take days or even weeks but you can still you can still turn a, a an okay song into a good song if you apply yourself and you have the skill so sometimes you get you know, right out of the box you've got a great idea you know it's going to be a great song but quite often it requires a little bit more skill and editing and adjusting to to take an idea and turn it into the same quality and standard as you hope the rest of your work has. You hear that, young songwriters? Uh, an okay to mediocre song on the page is better than no song at all because you <laughs> just get don't stare at the blank page. Just get something out, and you can always punch it up later. Is what Ian Anderson's advice is. All right, well, maybe only time for one more song. Then I know you've you've had a million, but my listeners will kill me if I don't at least ask about you know 1984, Bungle in the Jungle, one of your most famous, using the I guess animal kingdom analogies for we mere mortal humans. <laughs> um, where'd you get that idea? Were you out you know in the forest one day? I always am curious what sparks these things for you. Well, it was the refinement of a song that wasn't a very good song that we'd actually worked on a year before when we were recording in France, but didn't really come up with a an album project that 
I think was uh, of sufficient quality. But one of the songs was indeed called, not Bungle in the Jungle, it was called The Law of the Bungle. Um, and it was, that led to Bungle in the Jungle as being, um, I suppose, likening human society and characters in the in the real world to being uh, the animals of a, a jungle, a cruel, bitter um, jungle society where, you know, um, where the big guys eat the little guys. And that um, is very evident to me living here in the countryside because hardly a day goes past when I don't come down to find body parts in the kitchen. Not because um, not because um, I had an argument with my wife, but because one of our two cats uh, is a prodigious killer and he brings in birds and mice and occasionally rats that he's caught and wants to share that process with us. So, you know, I've always been, I had a, you know, a respect for animals and, and their natural inclination to be, brutal and in the case of house cats you know they are our friends our buddies they spend their time with us but they never have lost that that um that wild animal instinct to go out and kill something either just for the fun of it or perhaps to eat and they bring them back to the kitchen i mean we've even found we've even found them they, they, they will put them in their cat food bowl as a sort of prize to say, look what I brought my own dinner today. <laughs> in the cat food bowl. I yeah. served myself. Well, it's, ter it's terribly sad. I mean, I, I maybe 25% of the time, an animal they bring in, I manage to get it and manage to take it gently away from them and uh, release back into the wild outside uh, in a direction they wouldn't normally go. So yes, yesterday I saved a small bird that was... Um, was still fluttering about and I hope it survived. And a few days ago, there were a couple of mice that I had managed to um, uh, wrest away from those um, angry felines and and um, and hopefully the mouse went on to live another day. Well, probably only one day because he probably got caught again <laughs> 24 hours later. <laughs> Look at you saving the animal kingdom. They're sitting in a food bowl. <laughs> uh, mm. Well, we'll have to. I will. I do want to tell everybody, give you credit, that Bungle in the Jungle arrived on October fourteenth, nineteen seventy four, before October thirtieth, seventy four, which was the Rumble in the Jungle with George Foreman versus Muhammad Ali. So you guys were first, and they stole it from you, not the other way around. We got to, we got to tell everybody that. Um, very cool. Well, you've been generous with your time. I have to ask as, you know, a, a, you know, a, what do you say? Like early millennial myself, a lot of our generation knows Aqualung from Will Ferrell, <laughs> Ron Burgundy and Anchorman. <laughs> what was it like when you saw him, uh, you know, doing a spoof on the flute in a zany comedy like that? Do you, do you kind of roll your eyes or do you take that as ultimate form of flattery? <laughs> Well, I um, I had a couple of conversations about that character. I, I don't think it was necessarily only Jethro Tull that he was lampooning in, yeah. in terms of his character. I, I think there was a strong connection with a friend of mine who uh, was a Washington resident and um, and uh, well known, I suppose, through his um, his uh, radio program as a presenter on Fox um, oh, who Radio was in DC here in DC. Yeah, and then he became the press secretary for 
for um, George W. Bush. His name was Tony Snow, and Tony was a really great guy. I mean, an ardent Republican, but he was a, a, a real gentleman, and he was admired and respected by Democrats and Republicans alike as being a fair guy and um, and uh, a genuine, um, a genuine, I suppose, quite old-fashioned, traditional human being in terms of, of American politics and uh, and particularly in the cutthroat world of politics in the. In the in Washington, so he he was well respected, and he was a, a jazz flute player. That's how we kind of got to know each other, and and um, I think that I think the Ron Burgundy character, because it obviously the guy is a TV anchorman. Well, Tony Snow was a radio anchorman, and and uh, and a jazz flute player, rather like Ron Burgundy. Um, um, is in the character, so I, I, I think if I think it, I think it's modelled on Tony, but with a little bit of the Jethro Tull character thrown in in the uh, finale. Absolutely, and that thank you for that. I'd forget, and for a DC station, that's perfect. You just made my day to have a local connection. <laughs> I'd forgotten that Tony Snow um, was a, a flute player, and I know he passed away in two thousand eight, like right at the end of the of the George W. Bush administration. That so, yeah, rest in. He rest did, in and and in fact, Tony's last job when uh, you know when his cancer returned. Uh, uh, at, at, a, at a terminal level that so he knew he wasn't going to live very long, but he took a job right at the very end um, for CNN, who wanted to hire Tony to reflect, you know, the Republican viewpoint and uh, and the uh, the uh, the the run up to the the election, which um, which Obama won. But it was it was a it was I think quite a, a noble thing that he he took the job. In, in in good faith because of his ideological Republican sentiments, but CNN wanted somebody who would be the Republican in town, just as at that point, Fox TV had their tame Democrat supporting um, presenter who was part of nightly shows. You wouldn't find that today. I mean, I think, I think these days things have become so partisan and so divided that um, that generosity of spirit no longer exists in political television i i think you i think you're right i think you're right and, and it's and we're all the worse off because of it um well thank i didn't know we'd be talking politics but you know it all it all factors all your songs are political and social and objective so it all it all fits so hey thank you so much for doing this i guess final seconds what do we got to do to get jethro tall in the rock hall of fame i'm sure you don't care <laughs> but come on you just what, what do we got to do i mean seven decades come on <laughs> I don't think Jethro Tull really belongs in what is an American institution about uh, Americana in musical terms. And okay. I've always felt the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame should be reflecting the huge array of talent and historical important contributors to America's music far in uh, as a priority in, in relation to what is um, is offered up to musicians from other countries which after all are more likely to be the UK i don't think you'll find in the in the hall of fame too many people who um you know uh, were french or german rock artists or whatever <laughs> it's it's mostly it's mostly brits but i i think the the most of the brits who are in the hall of fame are people who owe a huge amount to american music in terms of their style and their 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 way of performing uh, they, they are embracing americana in in what they have produced musically whereas jethro tull since 1968 has not really owed a great deal to american music 
we've um, we've tended to follow a different path. So I, I don't think we really qualified. And yes, you, you're quite right in a sense that I, I would, wouldn't really want to be faced with that embarrassing situation of um, of being asked to uh, to uh, enter the the hallowed portals of the Hall of Fame. I mean, you will find Jethro Tull in in the, the the rock and roll, whatever it's called, in Cleveland, because uh, we were one of the first acts to to be represented in there when it opened its doors. Um, but uh, in terms of being inducted, well, that is a a whole different matter, and I think I'm very uh, very happy to be sitting on the the outside of that that world because I just really don't feel Jethro Tell merits or belongs uh, in that institution. <laughs> well said. Yeah, I mean, there's probably plenty of Jethro's uh, people named Jethro in America, but you guys are off doing your own thing, and, and the the name actually comes from a, a what an agriculturalist, the 18th century or something. So it's a, it, it it's fitting to stay over on that side of the pond in terms of these. Well, that's right. British uh, British inventor of the seed drill and agricultural uh, innovator, um, but of course Jethro at that point is particularly in the southwest of England was a common name and. Um, and Jethro is a biblical name, mm -hmm. so uh, I think it it has its 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 deep historical perspective, um, and uh, and luckily I'm not the guy who thought of it. It was our agent who gave us the name Jethro Tull back in '68, so we have him to blame. <laughs> well, we have you to thank for being so generous with your time. We'll let you run, but we'll tell everybody uh, pick up a copy of the new album. Rock? How do I say it? Not rock float. Rook float. Yeah. How do I? Rook. Flot, floater, flot, floater, rock floater, rock floater. Pick up a copy of Rook Flutter, the 23rd album by Jethro Tall. And also, you know, circle your calendars and get your tickets for the Seven Decades Tour at Wolf Trap in Virginia on August 24th. Hey, Ian Anderson, thanks so much for making this happen. I really appreciate it. Terrific. Nice to talk to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.